Yeah. Thank you, Michelle. Th thank you all for coming. Um, I'm very honored to talk with Sturdo Nan, who, in my view, is probably one of the best fictional chroniclers of human behavior. And I want to hopefully get into it. Uh, we've had last night the lobster, which demonstrates harrowing restaurant workers the last night of of the Red Lobster. Uh, Emily alone, the internal life of, of an older woman who is who is alone. Um, I'm not going to suggest that there's just literalism in your titles. <laughs> there's actually a good deal of more. But I, I do want to actually ask you, Sturt, um, it seems to me that with your books, you often seem to be hitting a different socioeconomic sector. And with this book, The Odds, we now have a married couple who goes to Niagara Falls, uh, and and hopes to you know possibly win, but they're also their their marriage is dissolving, um, and and also their their home is underwater, um, and I'm curious uh, how you find a character. How did Art and Marion uh, of this book come to be? Do the character voices uh, basically come out of you? Do you seek a particular socioeconomic sector? Hey, I'm not working that corner of the room. What of this? Just to start off with. Uh, well, Art and Marion, I think, are kind of left over from Fran and Ed, yeah. uh, Songs for the Missing. Yes. Uh, Ed Ed worked in Conneaut, Ohio, as a real estate agent, which is a losing proposition, <laughs> even in good times. Um, and, and they were kind of, you know, they're, they're decent people going through something that's kind of difficult. They're relatively overlooked. I guess they're, they're Nixon's silent majority. Yeah. Right? They're relatively white bread. Um, so they're, they're un... What's the word for it? I don't want to say uninteresting. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're unexceptional characters. Who are going through something relatively exceptional, yeah. and, and we, I want to see how they're going to react to it. I once asked you in an email interview, "Do you have a duty to chronicle certain types of characters or certain types of classes that aren't always going to get these kinds of narratives?" And I guess um, I didn't quite get an answer from you, although you you did you did a very good job of, of talking about other things. So you're gonna try again? Yes, yeah, so I'm gonna try, try again. again. So, I mean, good. you know, what yeah. of these particular this, this this middle class uh, uh, area? Why why do you keep being drawn to this? The downwardly mobile middle yeah, class. Yes, exactly. Uh, and I've been writing about them probably since the late 1980s. Uh, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. where the downwardly middle class was kind of invented yes. there. Uh, once the good working class jobs left, the good blue collar jobs that you could send your kid to college with, once they left Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh kind of emptied out. Yeah. And all the people left and pursued the job. So, so I saw it sort of firsthand back during the 1970s. Yeah. And definitely in the 80s when, when Pittsburgh kind of hit bottom. Uh, we lost something like half of our population yes. uh, within about 10 years. 300,000 people just sort of said, oh, we're out of here. We're gone. Yeah. Um, so I, I tend to sort of, I guess, reflect that personal experience in the writing. Yeah. No duty to literature in any way, or is it just personal experience? Is it what you read, that sort of thing? I don't know if I have a duty to literature. Yeah. I mean, I certainly have a duty to whatever person I'm writing about. I've got the, the opportunity to write about people that aren't written about that often, mm -hmm. I think, and, and to take their lives seriously. Um, and I also have the responsibility then of, of trying to get it right. Yeah. So that when people who are in the situation that my characters find themselves in, they, they read the book and they say, they don't just say, oh, Yes, that's how it is. They say, oh, man, I completely forgot about this. This brings back all these memories. This brings back all this stuff, you know, that's part of my life. So the hope is the reader brings their life to the book and sort of melds it with the characters. If I've left enough room for them, um, and then the book becomes more than just sort of my words on the page. Sure. I'm curious about style. Um, the beginning of the odds is extremely interesting because... 
we get this incredible sea of commas, almost mimicking the pauses that Art and Marion are in in their life. And I said to myself, hmm, this is a little close to A Prayer for the Dying, where you had those short sentences at the very beginning. And I'm curious how this kind of introductory style approach tends to uh, crop up. Uh, do the characters dictate style? Do you want to sort of shake things up from book to book to book? Or? Uh, for me, I'm very contrary. I always sort of like to piss people off. So in the first 10 pages of every single book I've written, you will find these speed bumps yeah. that seem to be thrown there as obstacles in front of the reader who's not going to be adventurous. Yeah. And it tells the reader, look, if you're not up for it, you can leave. Um, yeah. and, and that happens. They do leave. Um, why, why do you feel the need to put uh, the road bumps? Why do you want to it's, it's propel just, the reader? It's just my personality. It's That's it. I'm just I'm just a contrary. But you're such a nice of, guy. Oh no! You're wearing the baseball cap definitely and everything. not. You definitely know, not ornery. We can take you home to mother here. No, and and, and what would I do to her? Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kind of ornery, especially on the page. Yeah. Um, like like wish you were here, which is the prequel to Emily Alone. Yeah. Um, I figured that 80 percent of the people that picked it up would not finish it. Yeah. And I was fine with that. I was just okay with that. So you have yeah. no obligation really to the reader at all? I mean, it in seems fiction, to me... In fiction, my obligation is solely to the character. Okay. okay. Uh, in nonfiction, I think my obligation is to the material and to the reader and sort of answering whatever question the reader might have gotcha. that I can possibly answer. Um, I wanted to ask also about just Niagara Falls. I mean, here is a location that's loaded with all sorts of associations. Joyce Carol Oates wrote a book. The there. Falls. Though, yes, exactly. Yes, I was introduced the other night as as the the author of The Falls, <laughs> and I was like, not that prolific, um, not nearly. And, well, you are turning uh, them out one a year. Oh, thank yeah, you, yeah. churning them out. Oh, yeah, churning okay. them out. No. You said cranking, cranking before. Cranking, churning. Well, crafting. No, I like that. Okay, all right. Yeah. But they're short. They're short. So there you go. They're there's, tiny. There's craftsmanship in there. Don't worry. <laughs> I like um, that. But I'm wondering. I, you know, you're you're taking a location that's loaded with all sorts of cultural baggage. There's that Marilyn Monroe, Joseph Cotton film. Gotta love it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But uh, I'm wondering. You know, here you are taking two characters and putting them in a touristy location. I'm wondering if you did that to sort of work up against limitations and see what kind of behavior you could mine based off of that. And I'm wondering why you chose this. I mean, what was the process of selecting, you know, the bridge, the ice bridge, or, or the details of the customs location? You know, what, what, what went into to nailing Niagara? Well, I mean, it's, it's a ready-made stage. Now, usually when I take on an area or a setting, it's virgin territory in a way. Uh, Conneaut, Ohio, Kingsville in Songs for the Missing. No one's ever written about that in any kind of novel. Western Pennsylvania, Butler, PA in 1974. So I always say I've written the best Butler, Pennsylvania novel ever written. You know, <laughs> Or Avon, Connecticut. Usually these are sort of overlooked places like New Britain, Connecticut yeah. that Last Night at the Lobster takes place in. I write in that sort of that, that, that interzone, that sort of nowhere America of strip malls yeah. and have been sort of kicked around for it. But... In the new book, I thought, you know, let's focus solely on the characters and put them on a stage that everybody knows so that I don't have to do that kind of, um, that sort of disorienting, here is the place that you don't know, and now I'm going to tell you about it. Yeah. So I had a little less responsibility to the setting, and I could spend a little bit more time on the characters. Yes. I want to also, I have to ask you about the odds as chapter headers for all yeah. of these. Uh, you know, some 
are in fact true. Odds of a black number coming up in roulette, 1 in 2.06. I wikipedia that. Um, some are actually unscientifically true. Odds of a marriage proposal being accepted, 1 in 1.001. So I'm wondering, how many odds did you collect? I mean, I'm wondering if you were sitting on a bunch of odd sets. Yes. Yeah, yes. you were. You yes, were. I was. Yeah. And I was trying to figure out, how do I weave these into the book, and uh-huh. what effect are they going to have when I get them in there? Yeah. There. And... Um, they seem to me to work when I, when I thought of using them rather than sort of chapter headings the way that I did in, say, Emily yes. or in Songs for the Missing. Um, I saw them as how the chapter headings in something like um, Blood Meridian or in, say, 19th century fiction work, which is, in this chapter, I am eaten by sharks. You know, and before you even get in the chapter, we're like, oh, sharks, this could be cool. <laughs> yeah. So it kind of brings the reader in. It gives them an expectation of what may happen in this chapter. It not necessarily has to happen, but it may happen. The odds of a dying in a bus crash. Yes. You know, yeah. whoa, there might be a bus crash. I'll stick around and find out. Well, um, it's, it's interesting because here you are, in one sense, messing with the reader with the first 10 pages and sort of repelling them. And then on this, you're subverting their expectations. You're actually, ooh, I want to continue to read this chapter. So, well, you know. What of this sort of like bipolar approach to fiction writing? Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor said, distract them, then hit them over the head. Yeah. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Give them a reason to come into the place. Um, Prayer for the Dying. Yes. The opening sections are very... uh, it's a terrible thing to say. Very sort of beautifully written. Yeah. Um, I, I use the language. I make the beauty of the language um, sort of a, a key thing to hang into. Yeah. And so the reader gets rewarded somehow. And by the time they're halfway through the book, they're kind of stuck. They're like, well, I don't really want to hang around and watch this guy go crazy while I'm inside of his mind. I'm yeah. like, well, it's too late. You know. Um, so like Poe, say, in The Black Cat, once you get them in the door, then... After a certain point, they're, they're kind of yours. They have to follow along. Or you hope so. Yeah. I always hope so. I'm curious if the odds sets actually were method, methods for you to riff off of uh, for Art and Mary, and if you were stuck at a certain place. Did, did this point, or, or how, how much of this was really... I mean, you were a former engineer. I presume that this was either heavily designed, or were there false starts, and did the odds help you in any anything? Um, no, there weren't a whole lot of false starts. I kind of knew the characters very well. Yeah. Before I opened up, it's also very a small novel. It's very much sort of a drawing room novel in a way. I mean, it's the one weekend. You've got the unity of place, the unity of time. Uh, you've got a lot of pressure on them from the memories. This is their second honeymoon there in Niagara Falls. You have the, the sort of the time pressure of, you know, at some point they're going to have to put the money down on the wheel yeah. there. Um, and they're always kind of at odds with one another. They're always sort of picking at one another. Yeah. Um, so I had a lot to sort of work with. You know, the plates are already kind of spinning uh, when I sort of started getting into it. Yeah. I wanted to also ask you one interesting thing you do with Marion's body image. Um, she doesn't like uh, Art to see her uh, undress. And in, in one of the uh, passages you're going to read tonight, uh, the only thing you really mention is her stomach. We actually don't really know what she looks like physically. So I'm wondering if this is a method for you to not actually reveal certain details to the reader, or this kind of reflects your relationship to the reader. In, 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 do you, is this your sort of like way to protect your own characters, to not divulge all? Is this your way to encourage judgment or perception on the, on the reader's behalf? Um, th- this is more to encourage the reader to sort of join in the process of creating the work. And, and I, I don't say what the the character looks like unless it's really necessary to the arc of the story mm-hmm. there. So what the characters look like is completely up to the reader Yeah. there. Um, and, and I always sort of, I, I leave judgment to the reader. I don't sort of try to steer the reader too much in terms of who's good, who's bad, who's right, who's wrong. And it's always sort of that inkblot 
that you know, that shows you know how generous the reader can be, or how and on the flip side, you know how how stingy they can be. I hate Mary hate her so much it's like easy there lady easy have there you, that's you, have you actually had that's this that's so your far? oh yes oh wow, yes really? yes really? in wichita of all places wichita. i, I wow. didn't like her I said, well that's good that's your prerogative that's yeah. fine that's that's you you know so. i mean one of the interesting things I've, I've read a number of reviews of this book and they actually don't mention uh for example karen or like you know the, the, these two characters who are having affairs with the uh with the couple and, and i'm curious about this maybe this relates to this issue of uh of, of giving the reader something maybe they don't want to talk about this aspect of art and marion what do you think of this yeah i think they want to key more on just art and marion and, yeah. and just say look there are problems in the marriage you know and this is how they kind of work them out over this weekend or, or don't work them out sure yeah uh, inevitably, because you do deal with heart, I have to bring up celebrity gossip. Heart. Okay, so in tw- late 2010, Nancy Wilson and Cameron Crowe initiated divorce proceedings. It was a great shocker to to certain certain waves. So of, sad. Of, yeah, so sad. They um, had everything going for them. Yeah, they? Well, <laughs> they did. Yeah, I mean, I'm wondering if you included the heart concert before or after you heard this news, or if you possibly predicted their just that dissolution in any way? I mean, what, uh, what of this? I don't you have know. Some 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 sort of you know angle here. No, I, I don't know. It's sort of, it's sort of you know accidental subtext, I guess. <laughs> yeah, uh, accidental. Accidental. I guess it happens from time to time. Yeah. yeah. Another silly question. Um, I, Wendy is a character in this, and I have to ask you, and I know this is really pedantic, but I have noticed in all of your books, nearly all of your books, there's a moment where someone eats uh, Wendy's, Wendy's hamburger. Really? But not, not in the odds. I think the last time I saw this was uh, was last night at the Lobster, there was I, a Wendy's moment. Oh, but like, he, hey, he, there's the Stone yes, Man Wendy's he, moment. He, he doesn't go to Wendy's. Oh, though. he doesn't go he to Wendy's. He decides not to he go to He decides not to, but he does yeah. actually consider this is, it this, is, this, this is a climax. This, this is, is a yes, climax exactly. in, the, in, yeah. in an actual book. Yeah. Of fiction. I, I, yeah, but yeah. Will I, I go to I'm Wendy's? Why, why, no. Do you eat at Wendy's quite a bit? Yeah. Or, well, <laughs> no, maybe that's it. Maybe I want to eat at Wendy's more. Maybe that's right. the. I can see my biographer doing a lot on Wendy's now. Uh, a map of all the Wendy's around my house. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah. Well, actually, actually, there's, there's a, a more common moment throughout my books is the moment when someone throws up. Yeah. Yeah, That's that true. shows up again and again and again. And uh, Scott Summer, one of my very first uh, writing uh, professors here, he said that in his books, the moment the person throws up is when they're actually in, in some sort of prayer. Yeah. When they need something desperate, they always tend to throw up. And I was like, well, that's kind of funny. Uh, and I can't sort of get rid of it now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I want to also ask you about should be like a would be. Should um, be like a would be. Yes. Yeah, yeah. This is a little uh, joke between Art and Marion. And it, it, it crops up a couple of times in the odds. And I'm wondering, uh, is this something you heard? Or is this something you grew up with? Because I, I haven't really heard of this. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's a little phrase that I've heard. Should be like a would be. And, it, you know, it should be. You know, that, it should be open. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, should. You know, should be. It's just that, that shoulda, woulda, coulda kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, that's just a silly phrase, silly yeah. non, uh, nonce phrases. Yes, exactly. As it says in the book. Yeah. Uh, you know, in 2002, you once wrote a piece called Finding Time to Write, where you revealed some of your time management secrets. Okay. Uh, among the tips you offered was carrying a notebook and this very helpful maxim, if you don't write it down, it's gone. So um, I know you tend to write about a page a day, and I'm wondering if, since you wrote that essay in 2002, your routine has shifted in any way? You know, do you have a notebook on you now? I yes, mean, you know, yes, yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how do you, how do you, how do you, oh, you do. <laughs> Are you kidding okay. me? Yeah. Are you going to write something down right now? No, no, no. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's a character notebook. So, you know, you write things down about your character so that you get to, to know your character a little bit better and get into your character. How do you get into the, you know, the brain of your character? Um, you just keep thinking about the character and thinking about 
how they would see the world and what words they would use yeah. or, you know, things that they love, things that they fear. Um, so it's always about character. And then, and then later on, uh, when I get closer to writing something, it's about construction. You know, how, how are you going to find a way into this material? How do you sort of uh, make it live? Um, what have other people done with the same material? Um, how can you change it? How can you mess with it? Um, can you, can, you, know, you, read, simple can stuff. you read one of those things? Can or I read is one that of these? fair game? I'm sure, just, I can read one of these things. I just want to know what's in the notebook. <laughs> uh, his, his bank book as a natural ticking clock. Yeah, this is oh. a guy who needs needs some money. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, how much do you typically draw from the notebook? I mean, that ends up in, in the actual. In the construction, yeah. in the construction parts, a lot. Yeah. I think because I'm always thinking about how does it fit together? How's it gonna How's it gonna move? How's it gonna sort of you know work? Um, in the character part, not nearly as much. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just a way of getting to know that character better, so that once they're in action, you can feel sort of confident that what you have them do is what, in fact, they would do, yeah. or what they say is what they would say. Yeah. There, but there, there's a nice piece in here which I just pulled out, which is an attempt to show a man's life through some passionately regarded segment of it. Wow. There you go. Better than I could come up with. I stole that from somebody. <laughs> well, I, I think it's full of stolen stuff. It's full of overheard stuff. It's full of chance stuff. It's full of stuff that I wouldn't think of. Mm -hmm. um, it's 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 this sort of you know, this other mind, I guess. Wow. Well, yeah. I think that would be a good segue into you're going to read for okay. us, so you can give an idea of what the odds is all about, and then after that, uh, we'll open the floor up to questions and then uh, proceed from there. So. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm going to read from a section that is titled uh, Odds of the Sun Coming Up, One in One. Uh, Artis had an affair with Wendy 20 years ago. Marianne has never, ever forgiven him for it. Lately, she had an affair with a woman named Karen at work that did not go well. It was more of a dalliance in a way. Art's hope for the weekend is that they will get back together that they will win at the roulette tables. He's brought this ring to give to her to ask her once again to be his wife. Uh, Marianne's hope for the weekend is that they will lose at the roulette table and then passively she can sort of walk out of the marriage and begin a life again by herself. Um, and of course, they are going to go see Hart later. <laughs> Odds of the sun coming up, one and one. The next morning, as if to erase the night before, they made love. He was tentative yet pesky, rubbing against her. She was barely awake. Seriously, she said, since his excitement had nothing to do with her, but gave in, sleepily hiking up her nightgown. Try not to press too hard on my stomach. I won't, he promised, and then paid too much attention to honoring the request, locking his elbow so he hovered above her. The bed was less giving than their pillow top at home, and his wrists hurt. It had been so long, he was afraid he would explode and proceeded slowly. The heat of her always astonished him, as if, deep inside, like the earth, she possessed a fiery core. He was quiet, deliberate, focused on her forehead, her eyebrows, the hollows of her collarbone. She tipped her chin up, and he descended to kiss her throat. His breath was sour, and she turned her head to one side, closed her eyes as if to steal a few more minutes of sleep, murmuring with pleasure to encourage him. His lips on her neck stirred ticklish beginnings. Too soon, he pulled away from her throat, but she wasn't invested enough to correct him. She peeked and found him working intently, his face slightly pained, as if he had a toothache. 
As he quickened, she arched, squeezing her arms against her ribs to push her breasts together, a trick that never failed. He seized, clenched, then exhaled, let his head drop. They chastely kissed, politely traded their most solemn pledge, perilous any other time, yet exempt here, as if this space were sacred. Staying together till she patted his side to let him know he could roll off now. Their room faced east, and the curtains were edged with sunlight. Looks like it's going to be a nice day, he said. Oh, I thought it already was, she said, and excused herself to use the bathroom. He lay back in the pillows, dazed and emptied from his efforts, limbs splayed, contemplating the rough popcorn ceiling, his mind wiped clean. Right up until she lifted her nightgown, he hadn't been sure she would have him. After thirty years, she was still inscrutable, and while normally that was frustrating, it produced in moments like this an abject gratitude, a feeling of having been rewarded spectacularly for enduring those long, brittle stretches of indifference. He was pleased enough with his performance, she seemed happy with it, and congratulated himself on his persistence. He was convinced there was a lesson in it. No matter what happened, all he needed to do was keep trying. In the bathroom, cleaning herself, she knew it had been a mistake, undertaken casually, without thought of the consequence, as if this were any other weekend. She had to be more careful. Making love was a way of laying claim to each other, both of them openly agreeing to renew that bond. After all of their problems, she wanted foremost to be honest. Her fear was that after the fact, he might accuse her of premeditation. But their habits were so entrenched, and she didn't want to hurt him. She figured it would hold him till tomorrow. How's your stomach? he asked when he returned. It's okay. Where's the clicker? By the TV. She grabbed it, and he lifted the covers to let her back in. Since neither of them was working, they developed the bad habit of sleeping late and watching TV in bed, checking the news and weather, then surfing her cooking and home makeover shows. Here, she didn't feel guilty about it, and indulged herself, seeing what the barefoot Contessa was making. I wonder how late they serve the buffet, he said. Oh, you're not serving me breakfast in bed? We could. I'm just kidding. He went to the bathroom, then paraded in front of her to open the drapes, letting in the blinding light. He stood there like a hairy cherub, admiring the view. People are already out taking pictures. Hey, they've got horse and buggy rides. All she wanted to do was watch her show, but no, he needed her attention. He was such a boy. Why don't you go take your shower, she said. Oh, you want me to holler for you? No, I want to see how this turns out. Once he was gone, the bare stage of the room made her excuse all the more glaring. He was playful after they made love, frisky, yet she felt no residual giddiness, no surge of energy, only fatigue and a vague bitterness. She wasn't angry with herself so much as at her expectations, that once again she'd fooled herself into doing something she knew wouldn't help in the long run. She'd felt the same with Karen at the end, but then she'd attributed it to guilt and the stalemate of their situation. Now, there was no one she was trying to be faithful to but herself, and she couldn't even do that. In the bathroom, he was singing. She muted the TV to hear. Try to understand, he crooned. Try to understand. Try, try, try to understand. He's a magic man. They were seeing heart tonight, 
a band he mistakenly thought she'd like when she was a teenager because he'd liked them when he was a teenager. As he did the solos, ridiculously impersonating the various instruments, she lay there listening, clicker in her lap, not understanding how he could be that oblivious and that happy, both of which, she thought, were at least partly her fault. Oh, oh, married life. <laughs> Not easy. Not easy at all. Now you were going to read uh, the heart concert too? The heart concert, yes. It's a longer section, um, so settle in a little bit. Uh, they're going to see Hart. Um, he has the ring in his pocket. He's blown $10,000 that they would lose to bankruptcy anyway. Um, so he's bought this big fancy ring to give to her. On the bus ride up across the aisle was, was a biker couple that were making out the entire way there. And Marion looked over the aisle in disgust, and Art looked over with envy there. Um, and before this, they ate dinner at the revolving restaurant on top of the Skylon Tower. Always a bad idea. Um, and Art there thought that he saw Nancy Wilson of heart, which is one reason why they stayed there to eat dinner and got kind of tanked up. Then they went back to the room and hit the minibar. Um, so they're a little tipsy to begin with here. Um, and after the concert, they're going to do the dry run at the roulette table. So. Odds of heart playing crazy on you in concert, one in one. Even as they waited outside in the bright, sterile mall, shuffling toward the theater doors with the other latecomers, most of them their age, Art noted. The reek of burning weed was overpowering and brazen. He'd forgotten it was legal in Canada, or at least decriminalized. Marion sniffed the air and arched her eyebrows like Harpo. Inside, a fog hung in the trusses, reflecting the kaleidoscope of the light show, and he wondered how the owners got around the fire code. When a joint came down their row, she hid it and passed it to him as if it was natural. He held the smoke in his lungs, watching Nancy Wilson strumming her 12-string and stepping forward to press a pedal, her skin tinted yellow and then red under the gels. Her hair was only shoulder-length and straight, not the luxuriant tresses he remembered, and she was noticeably thinner, as if she'd been sick, her wrists bony. Though he'd sworn it was her, the woman from the restaurant had been someone else. It wasn't the first time he'd gone out of his way to prove he was a fool. This was minor comparatively. He exhaled, adding his breath to the cloud above. Beside him, Marion swayed to the music, the crowd singing along so loudly he could barely pick out the vocals. It was like being trapped in a giant karaoke bar on heart nights. For years, he'd been hearing that dope was stronger. Now he believed it. They'd been drinking for hours, so maybe it was the combination. His lips were numb, his face a rigid mask, as if he were slowly being paralyzed. He felt himself receding, a flickering brain cell trapped inside a thick, inert head, like the lighted stage at the end of the dark auditorium. He watched the crowd as much as the band. They played two or three favorites, then a new tune nobody knew, everyone settling again as if in protest. Someone down the row must have had a bag of joints, because they just kept coming. The smell was piney, sweet. Marion coughed and laughed at herself, offered it to him. He needed to be coherent for the dry run later, and rather than abstain and look like a lightweight, he took in a shallow mouthful and blew it out. 
The new tune garnered tepid applause, and then the stage, the whole place went black, as if they'd lost power, only the red exit signs floating in space. In the dark, people shrieked and whooped and whistled, called out songs. After a long minute, a single orange spot found Nancy Wilson downstage, perched on the very edge, one high-heeled boot atop a monitor, her right hand raised straight in the air like Pete Townshend, about to windmill. She waited until the shouting and catcalls subsided, lowered her pick to her strat, and broke into the galloping opening riff of Barracuda, making everyone jump up. She played it twice, three times, torquing the whammy bar, bending the last jangling cord so it ricocheted off the walls and scattered, then spun, kicked, and the flashpots bloomed like fireworks, blinding, as the rest of the band jumped in, thunderous, hitting them like a wind. So, this ain't the end, I saw you again! Anne shrilled. Marion grabbed him, and though he had no idea how to dance to the song beyond a head-banging pogo and understood they looked as ridiculous as all the stiff, middle-aged baby boomers around them, he tried to match her enthusiasm, sticking out his chin and pouting jagger-like, lip-syncing to the words he didn't know he knew. Her smirk was a challenge, half put down, half come on. They mock-taunted each other with the chorus, And if the real thing don't do the trick, no, you better make up something quick. You're gonna burn, 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 burn to the wick. The coda was all churning guitars and flashing strobes. After the last cymbals crashed and the lights died, they embraced, sweaty, celebrating the greatness of the song and how wasted they were. When she kissed him, he tasted weed and tequila. She hung on his neck, shouted in his ear, Is there anything left to drink? He made it his mission. There was no sense in both of them going. His mouth was dry, and he had a craving for a beer anyway. As he'd predicted, the lines were endless, the concessions people painfully, irritatingly slow. He didn't mind missing a couple of cheesy power ballads, but while he was still a dozen people from the front, he recognized from a lifetime of AOR radio the finger-picked flamenco intro and then the strummed build-up giving way to the big, fuzzy, falling-down-the-stairs riff crazy on you. We may still have time, we might still get by. The song could have been about them, and he wished he were there with her for it. Part of the reason the line was so slow was that they had to check everyone's ID, which made no sense given the crowd. He shifted from foot to foot, looked to the ceiling for patience. The waiting was giving him a headache, and then when he reached the counter, incredibly, all they had was light beer. They were $10 a piece, and he could only buy two. He didn't tip his server, then felt guilty, which pissed him off even more. He took a sip from each beer so they wouldn't spill and hustled across the concourse, skirting the steady stream leaving the arena. The band was playing another song no one cared about. As he made his way down the aisle, he passed dozens of people texting on their glowing cell phones. Back at the seats... Marion was doubled over, her head twisted, one cheek pressed against the seat back in front of her. A woman he'd never seen before knelt beside her, shining a flashlight app around like she was trying to help. He thought Marion had passed out and blamed himself for leaving her. And then she straightened up, smiling goofily, pinching something tiny and glinting between her fingers. The woman cupped a palm to receive it, tilted her head, and refastened her earring. Oh my God, thank you so much, she said, hugging Marion like a long-lost friend. 
They were both completely stoned. She was from the row ahead of them and bumped him as she slipped past, spilling the beers. You were gone a while, Marion said, taking hers. I heard crazy on you. What else did I miss? Nothing too exciting. All they had was Bud Light. That's fine. It was a waste. By the next song, his beer was gone. Marion swayed along to alone, but for him, the mood was ruined. His back hurt from standing. It had to be 9.30. No way they'd go two hours. He counted the songs they'd played, thinking they must almost be done. He imagined they were saving Magic Man for the encore. As they ran through their later, lesser hits, he expected every song to be the last. He pictured the casino teeming with people, the blackjack dealers calmly revealing their hands, servers bustling between tables with free drinks. Between songs, as Nancy was switching guitars in the darkness, Anne strode to the front of the stage. Now we know it's not Valentine's Day, but we're not here tomorrow, sorry. So we'd like to wish everybody a happy Valentine's Day, all right? All right! It's a special night. Niagara Falls is a special place. So before our last song, we'd like to bring up some special people to do something special. She checked her cheat sheet. Please welcome Tom Rutkowski and Allison Spagnota. Hope I got that right. Tom here has something he wants to ask Allison. The crowd cheered as the couple walked on. And for a moment, Art felt as if he'd been robbed. He rubbed a hand over the bump in his pocket to make sure the box was still there. Why hadn't he thought of it? It seemed obvious now. A simple phone call, and they could have been up there instead of these two. Hefty, even beside Ann Wilson, and weirdly familiar. As the man lowered himself to one knee, nightlight in the spotlight, Art recognized the orange Harley bandana and leather vest. Holy crap. You know who that is? Who, Marion said. They were sitting right across from us on the bus. Yikes, don't remind me of that bus. The woman said yes, and the couple embraced to a standing ovation. A gracious hostess, Ann Wilson kissed them each on the cheek and sent them off, waving to their new fans. As the lights dimmed, then died, Art imagined the congratulations awaiting them and the happy place this memory would have in their married life, and thought, once again, that through his own lack of imagination or foresight, he'd blown another chance. From the darkness, softly, lilted a synthesizer riff he associated with something bobbing in water, and behind it, revolving like the scratchy edge of a record, the crash and hiss of surf washing ashore. Gradually, the lights came up, bathing the stage a marine blue. A guitar joined in, and another synth, their twin single notes descending slowly, sweetly. He knew the song, but couldn't quite place it in their catalog, because it wasn't one of theirs, he realized, before Anne sang a word. It was the Who's Love Rain Army, disorienting here, a complete surprise. As a teen, he'd been skeptical of the anthem, too inexperienced and self-conscious to buy the idea. Now, on the far side of romance, he wasn't sure it was realistic. Or was he unworthy of the sentiment, split as he'd been? It made him think of Wendy and the beach, the lunch hours they'd sat at the chained-down picnic tables, necking and planning a future that never happened. Marion tugged at his arm, and he leaned down. I love this song! I didn't know they played this song! They don't, he shouted. It's probably because it's Valentine's Day. 
He wasn't sure she heard him because she didn't respond, just swayed by his side as Anne overpowered Roger Daltrey. At the end, both Wilson sisters came forward, arms over each other's shoulders. Thank you, Nancy said. And good night, Anne said. They bowed and threw a dating game kiss. We love you. The stage went black, the synthesizer riff and the crashing waves still circling, softer and softer, till they were lost in applause. All around him, people held up their phones, a ghostly phenomenon he'd only seen on commercials and disliked on principle. The few surviving smokers raised real lighters, blatantly violating the law. He wished he had one. They clapped in rhythm. We want heart! We want heart! As expected, the band returned for an encore, taking their places again. Cynically, he thought it was all choreographed, as slick and shallow as Vegas. Why did it bother him? Everyone sold out to survive. It was the price of getting old. He'd tried his best, just no one was interested. They surprised him with another cover, Led Zeppelin's Rock and Roll, which he danced to, feeling faintly embarrassed, while Marion flung her hair around. Been a long time since a rock and roll. It was true. He had no moves and was already pondering which of the two roulette tables they should play. He bopped along, nodding in time, then finally gave up during Magic Man, standing quietly beside her, constrained and impatient, as if waiting to be released. Okay. I have one vital question before we open the floor up to questions. First of all, do you have any karaoke experience? Oh, <laughs> thank God, no. No, really? Thank really. God, I, no. I, have you been, have, are you sickened by heart? Or do you no, I like, I like, I like heart. Yeah. Okay. I like heart a lot. Yeah, but I mean. You sing in the shower? Ann, Ann Wilson? No one can sing like Ann Wilson. Yeah, she's, yeah. Just, she's a beast. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Okay. Does anybody have any questions? Any questions? Aha, yeah. in the back there. Um, one of my favorite things about your writing is that I find that um, I get very into the characters and they often stick with me after I finish the book. I almost miss them a lot. Oh, great. Um, so I'm wondering how you feel about your characters. Do you, when you finish writing the book, do you put them away? Um, do you still flip to your notes about them, even though you've written about them? Or is there any one particular that stuck with you or... Um, yeah, a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, like Salinger says, once you start remembering, you start missing everybody. And that's what happens when I'm writing a book and I finish it or I get to the end of, like usually like a second or third draft when I know I've, I've done most of my work on it, um, I'll start really missing the characters. It's like, it's like, you know, you've been on the speeding train for like two years and all of a sudden you walk off the back of it and you're in the middle of nowhere with nobody around you. Um, the characters are really a comfort. Uh, get to hang out with them, to be really sort of close to them. And that's, that's what I really love about, it's what I love about reading um, and being with these, these sort of these made-up characters that I then believe are real, sort of in my mind, and the same thing with writing, the same thing. Um, and there's some characters that did sort of stick around a lot. Um, Marjorie from Speed Queen hangs around more than I wish she would. Um, she's just, she's a wacko. Um, she's nuts. Uh, Emily always sort of hangs around. Um, Arthur from Snow Angels hangs around. Jacob. Prayer for the Dying, um, Lindsay from Songs for the Missing. So, yeah, there's a lot of them that are sort of always there. And, and you feel that if you write the book well enough that they'll be there in the book and you can always go back to them and be with them in those scenes and, and have that intimacy with them again. But sometimes it's just sort of in your, in your head there. But Marjorie, I think, is probably the only one who really talks to me a lot, which is not good. 
not good. I think I, I, I love getting close to characters in the third person. There's always a little bit of separation there because there's there's Emily and then there's me. Uh, but when I'm working in first person or second person, sometimes in, in both books, uh, Prayer for the Dying and Speed Queen, um, I look at them and think these are not the product of a sane mind because I've gotten too close to these characters, both of whom are not what they say they are. Um, and once I get into them, I sort of spiral down with them. And I can see why Poe drank a lot. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering at what point you knew how you were going to end um, the odds. Is it something that you knew when you began the book? Did you already know? Or? No, no, I didn't know. Um, and I kind of knew when I wrote the line. I wrote the line, I was like, walk away, just walk away. <laughs> just walk away, go, just move away from that. You, you know. And I started to think about that last line. I was like, you know, in a, in a very weird way, that's that's it. That's that's the right moment to sort of like stand back and uh, the, the cliche, right, of the terrible movie, the freeze frame. You know, <laughs> we're on the freeze frame. I was like, uh, you know, and it's a very different way, a very different way to end. Usually, I will end with something sort of very, very valedictory at the end, where you know, I'll get the rhetoric up and blah, 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 you know. And then I knew that things had forever changed, and never again would I go back to the way things were. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and this just seemed sort of just a clean, quick way, and like you know the and yeah yeah it was a surprise it was a great surprise originally there was going to be a large epilogue off the back end that showed what happened afterwards and how their experience there sort of how they saw it years later um, then I thought well you're already doing that in a way that's how the book is organized it's organized by how they're going to remember this experience years from now and that's been true of a lot of the last six or seven books that's all organized by memory and a memory that's that's at this point here beyond the sort of the frame of the book. There, you know, where is the story being told from? Where is the story being remembered from? How's it being selected? There. That that often happens. You know, I'll get to the place and I'll be like, I don't know, I'm not sure. And then something will come, and and you hope it's right. It's not always going to be right, and they're not always going to be good. You know, they can they can be terrible. You, know, you can think you got the greatest thing in the world, and it just can suck. Yeah, my, my first my first novel is around 670 pages long. I spent about two years writing it, and I was like, yes, I did it. The great American novel, here it is. <laughs> you know, and the agents were like, hey, do you have a novel you can show us? And I was like, do I? <laughs> do I ever? You bet. And, uh, and the, the reader's reports would come back. I did not finish the lengthy parts two, three, or four. <laughs> Obviously, Mr. Onan has talent. However, he's yet to find his material. And I was like, eh. They're not all going to be good. You know, if, Faulk, if every book by Faulkner is not good, who am I to say I'm going to write a good book every time out there? You hope that the readers will remember the good ones and kind of forget the mediocre ones and the bad ones. I mean, Edith Wharton, great American writer, wrote, I believe, 30, 31 or 35 novels. Of those, we only remember three or four of them. And we remember them because they are the really great ones. And the rest of them, that's fine. So when Joyce Carol Oates is cranking them out like that, that's okay. I'm willing to sort of forgive her her misfires because when she gets something and gets it good, it's really good. So I'd rather be a writer like that than to spend 30 years like William H. Gass on the tunnel, you know, and come up with this thing and look, I've perfected this this doorstop of a book. And it's like, <laughs> yes, you have, sir. Yes, you. Have. I mean, I love William H. Gass, I do, but that's not the kind of writer that I'd want to be. I want someone who goes out there, does a lot of different kinds of things, different lengths, different focuses. Fosai. Um, uh, Margaret Atwood is, is one of my favorite writers because she's fearless. She'll do anything. 
know, she can write lyric poetry, epic poetry, you know, the, the short, short story, um, the short story, the novella, the, the big novel, the sort of the serial novel. She can do anything, I think. Or Stephen King. I mean, same sort of thing. What what happened to this early novel? Did you try to rework it, or are there? Other oh other yeah, I, tr- I tried. Or, yeah. I tried. No, no, it was just <laughs> it was a lot of really nice sentences put together. Yeah. In in one very large manuscript. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a drawer novel. Yeah. Is this yeah. why why you write shorter novels now? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I have I think about three and a half drawer novels. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, it's, it's, you know, any like any apprenticeship is a sort of long way getting there. Wow. Long long way getting there. And, wow. And, you know, and still, and they can suck, you know. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you see the books that come out that we're yeah. surrounded by. You know, most books suck, mm. you know. <laughs> yeah, most everything sucks, right? Right? I mean, I think Vonnegut said... Surgeon's 90, Law, yeah, 90% of everything is crap. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think Vonnegut pushed it up to 94%. Yeah, exactly. yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. he was... He's, 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 a, he's a little crankier than Sturgeon, yeah. Again, Theodore Sturgeon. Yeah, I love, exactly. I love yeah, him, yeah. yeah. Richard Matheson. Oh, yeah. Charles Beaumont. Love those guys. More than human needs to... Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes, okay. yeah. Good stuff. Uh, we can geek out later. Are there any other questions? Yeah. But that's that's sort of my enthusiasm oh, yeah. there, is, is for those early sci-fi writers yeah. and people like Shirley Jackson and... You know, the weirdest. Alfred Bester. Right? Alfred Bester, yeah, yeah, yeah. All those guys. Back in the day. You're my publicist. I hope I hope it puts me in a good light. You know, it's not a gotcha question, right? Yeah. Where can you find this book? Wow. I, about writing a page a day. So, are there ever days you write more or less, or, and like you write like ten pages and you think it's crap, or never that much? No, never that much. Never, never that much. You know, um, lately, you know, one page a day, and usually I can get that one page, double space, three hundred words, and you hope it's good. And sometimes, sometimes it holds up, and sometimes it doesn't. And some days you think, you know, you're you're just like, you know, pushing the peanut across the Sahara Desert with your nose, and you're like, oh, this is terrible. And the next day you're like, oh, this is not too bad. And some days you're like, man, this is great. And, and the next day you're like, eh, it's, it's got to go. Um, so it's, it it's very little. Three for those three hundred words or so. How long? Is it take? All day. All day. All day. Yeah. I mean, I'll sit there. Yeah. I'll sit there. Yeah. Yeah. When I when I first started writing, I I, I was really bad at sitting there. So I would get up and I'd look around my shelves and I'd take a book off the shelf and I'd start reading and I'd sit down with the book and I'd read like 50 pages of the book and you know I wasn't getting my work done. So I, I tied myself to the chair. Yeah. I, I took a big piece of yarn, wrapped it around my thigh, tied it to the, the leg of the chair so that when I stood up to get away from the, the blinking cursor, the chair would hit me in the legs and say, you need to sit there. You know, Flannery O'Connor, yeah. sit at your machine. Yeah. She said, and that's exactly it. It's, it's like NASCAR. You, know, you put in your seat time, good things will happen. No, it's 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 absolutely true for me at least. And I'm not a person that can write a book in their mind, you know, wait nine months for it to gestate and then sit down and say, okay, here we go. Yeah. No problem. Um, so what, what do you do with Wi-Fi and the internet and solitaire and Mindscape? I, I don't I don't have it on my computer that oh, yeah. I write on. It's okay. just this little word processing Aha, thing, and that's all it does. Nothing yeah. else. Yeah. Wow. It helps being really stupid about technology. Um, I'm, I'm an engineer who's like the, the, the most Luddite engineer in the world. You know, my, 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 daughter's, uh, my daughter's voice is on my voicemail on my phone. And, and, and my phone is from like 1993. It's like a museum piece. You know, the Smithsonian's going to get it someday. Um, but yeah, I just, and I'm, I'm good. Like, like most writers, I'm good at not communicating yeah. with people. Uh, I'm good at sitting in a room in a chair by myself for hours. That's my superpower. That's what I got. Yeah. No, it's nothing else. But you're also really good at observing people. Are you just? I mean. No, no, no. no. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty ignorant and um, 
dull or dim, dense. That's the word, dense. I'm pretty dense. I don't know why people do what they do. I don't, I don't understand people. You know, things happen in my family, and my wife's like sort of laying out all these reasons. I'm like, oh, oh, I get it. I see. Um, and, and it's that density. I mean, yeah. it, people say, you know, write what you know. I say write what you want to know or write what you kind of need to know yeah. but don't know. I mean, I don't understand how people can be in love one day and the next day they're not. Yeah. It happens every, every day. But I don't know how. I don't know why. How, how do people uh, kill their, their, their estranged wives? How do people kill their estranged husbands? I don't get it. How does love turn to hate? No idea. But there it is. It happens all the time. So would you say that the act of writing a novel is really your way to try to understand a certain type of person who you just don't get or you just don't understand? Really? That's what any, any kind of person. Any kind of, any person. kind of person. I don't get anybody. Huh. I don't. You know, and well, working, working on the page. Not even your wife? Or? No, definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. Um, but, but working on the page is a way of sort of slowly working through it and making better and better guesses towards it and gathering information so that you might know a little bit more. That you might. And... Or, or you might not, I and mean, you yeah. could be completely, completely wrong. So, so what do you do for like? Do you do any reconnaissance missions to talk to certain types? I mean, what's oh, what's, yeah. the, what's the people yeah. research like for you? Well, you always ask people that are in that kind of situation. You know, what what do you want to tell the world that, that they don't know about, say, working at a Red Lobster, yeah. you know, yeah. or, or serving people? You know, I talked to a lot of serving people for the Lobster book, and one thing that they said was the thing you have to get in there is the mother that won't control their goddamn kid, and I was like. <laughs> I had no idea, but <laughs> in he goes, and you know what? He's throwing up. Yeah. It's going to happen. He's throwing up, and then my hero's going to have to clean it up, and then, and then the mother's going to yell at him for it, and I was like, works. So, 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 so Dostoevsky humiliation there. You just heap it on him, you know? And, so someone tells you something, and then you start as you get into the, getting into your engineer mindset, and you start thinking, "Oh, well, he could do this, he could do that." Yeah. Is that kind of how it works? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I mean yeah. when when I think about people in the situations that they're in, there's some things that they that are inevitable. We have to do these certain things, you know, and there are other things that are possible and other things that are probable. And so you look at those three things: the inevitabilities, the probabilities, the possibilities. That's what your character can do. I yeah. mean, if the guy's working at a Red Lobster, you know, there's only a certain amount of things that he possibly can do. Yeah. Um, without making the big stupid gesture. There. A terribly pedantic question. But okay. when you were reading the section from Heart, and this reminded me when I read the book too, you sing all these lyrics, and of course, my first thought, the pedantic, is, "Oh my God, permissions cost." So what I want to know. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, fair usage. Fair <laughs> usage. Yeah, so I, I think you can take something up to three lines mm -hmm. of poetry or songs. So I always made sure that it was less than three lines there. Yeah, not that I have trouble groveling to people like Hart. Uh, actually, uh, for The Good Wife, I was trying to use uh, Fleetwood Mac, the chain. I was trying to get the entire lyrics to the chain and then cut the chain up across the different sections there. And four of the Fleetwood Mac people gave me permission and, St and Stevie Nicks, wherever you are. Oh, really? I'm going to get wow. your ass. I'm going to get your ass. I thought Christine McVie would be the tough one, but no. Stevie Nicks is like, yeah. Did you try begging to Stevie Nicks I on the phone to... at all? Or? Uh, no, we begged to Stevie Nicks' lawyers. Oh, but, I you know, I mean, I, I've, you know, I've dealt with Springsteen. I got permissions from them. Clapton yeah. from them. I didn't get them from uh, Cat Stevens. Uh, for Snow Angels, I used a whole bunch of Cat Stevens because uh -huh. it's a really sort of malevolent, depressing novel. And I wanted to use his lyrics in the most sort of like low down way possible and and then could never get them Good. But, but yeah uh, yeah it could be very expensive could be uh, 
like it would be. Um, what do you love about or what draws you to writing these sort of slim volumes um, that take place in a relatively short period of time, even though they rely so much on the characters' memories? And... Yeah, what draws me to the small book there? It just, it just it happens that's the, that's the size the book had to be. I thought, you know, here I've got two points of view. I've got a limited time frame. I knew the book was not, I mean, I'm not going to write, you know, an 800-page book about three days in Niagara Falls. It would be, it would be bloated. I mean, everything, everything has its ideal size. Everything has its ideal speed. Um, everything has the ideal choice of point of view. I mean, you always have a million choices to make. There's no sort of default mode, uh, at least for me. I, I, I think that's, that's problematic. You end up getting shtick. I think if you applied the same sort of, you know, if Thomas Wolfe, you know, wrote, you know, this novel, it would be 700 pages long and there'd be these giant set piece memory things. It's just, it's not necessary, I think. The idea is to find the ideal way, the most powerful way to get the character's emotional world across to the reader. And economy sometimes plays into that. I mean, sometimes you want a big rumbling sort of baggy, shaggy monster like Names of the Dead, which I think came in like 580. Um, and, I, and I needed that, that heft to it there because of his state of mind. But for, for these guys, Quick was the way to do it. Last Night at the Lobster, Quick was definitely the way to do it, I think. What's the quickest novel you've written? I mean, like how anything along the lines of like uh, Muriel Spark or whatever. Oh, how fast yeah, yeah, the, how the, fast, the process fast, of yeah, actually yeah, writing yeah. it? Um, I wrote Speed Queen in 66 days. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was living on Route 66, wrote it in 66 days. I had gone to see, I was living in Oklahoma at the time, and we'd gone to see a double feature of Pulp Fiction and Heavenly Creatures. And I was like, yes, this is great. You know, I can have all kinds of fun with this. So I went back home and just started just you know, whipping through it, and I was having all kinds of fun. I was laughing aloud to myself. My wife was like, what are you doing in there? And I'm like, I'm writing a comedy. And she's like, Oh, really? Um, and so she read it. She goes, this isn't funny at all. <laughs> and I was like, well, it's, it's, it's mordantly funny, isn't it? And, uh, so some people have said, no, I think it's, it's really funny. So those few people are as sick as I am. Who are your I early think, readers yeah. out of curiosity? Uh, my wife, Trudy. Yeah. She's one of my, my very best readers. Very, very straight ahead and will tell me exactly what she thinks of it. Um, um, Sung, Sung Woo. Um, um, uh, Stephen King, Dennis Lehane, Susan Strait. Uh, Luis Urea, um, uh, Lamar Heron, my teacher at Cornell, mm -hmm. still reads everything. Minette Ansay, who was in my workshop at Cornell, still reads everything. Uh, Paul Cody, um, who's really great with sort of overall structure, especially with the larger pieces. Mm -hmm. He says, you know, how come this doesn't pay off here? We're sort of missing something here. And, um, they're, they're people that I trust because they've read thousands and thousands of pages. Um, and I mean, Minette is such a, she's a marvelous poet and so good with language that if I have a metaphor in, in a, a manuscript and there's an X over it from her, it's gone. It's out of there because she's just, she's more attuned than I am. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is there anybody else? Any? Ah. You're, you're a 50 year old man, yet you can seem to be able to get into the body and mind of an 80 year old woman and get it so perfectly. Oh, thanks. Thank you. How do you do that? Do you know a lot of 80-year-old women? Um, well, yes. I mean, my, my mother, well, you know, uh, my, my mother-in-law, my aunt, um, my, my wife's grandmother, my grandmother's. I mean, all of those people sort of went into Emily there. And again, keeping the notebooks on Emily. And because she appears in two books, I've been thinking about her and writing about her for a long time. So I was sort of... Um, Pretty uh, comfortable in her skin, I think. Originally, Wish You Were Here was going to be all her. It's going to be entirely her book. 
Um, so I realized I sort of had unfinished business. I knew a lot more about her that I didn't use and wish she were here. And I was kind of interested to see how she was doing, you know, seven years down the road there. But I, you know, I talked to a lot of people and I would do readings, uh, daytime readings at libraries in Connecticut uh, with the circus fire. And I would hand out a questionnaire for people to answer um, if they were of a certain age. And I'd say things like, how has your town or your neighborhood changed? Name three places that used to go that aren't there anymore. Who do you miss? You know, what, and, and so, you know, they fill out these questionnaires and I would just sit there sort of, you know, with a marker like a teacher, sort of just cherry picking this stuff going, man, it's great. That's great. Man, I can really use that. And it would go from there then into a notebook and then from there you should have strain it down and, and just get, you know, a little bit more selective, a little bit more selective. Again, so people that are in that situation see themselves not merely reflected, but sort of prodded to remember all sorts of other things so that they can bring that world that has weight and extension in the real world into the book itself. So the book can be of a certain density, but the memories outside of the book are even, even greater. That's the hope. Thanks. Any uh, other questions? There's one more over here. Yeah. Yeah? Okay. Forever hold your peace. Well, so. Thank you all so much for coming out thank tonight. You, sir. Yeah. Ed, thank you, thank you so much for moderating. Thank you. It's been an honor.